Beloved congregation, boys and girls, is the Lord your shepherd? Boys and girls, you know that I asked you to think about that this week. Is the Lord your shepherd? Because that is literally a life and death question. It is only well with us if by the grace of God we can say, the Lord is also my shepherd. Because only if he is your shepherd are you able to live well and are you able to die well. And the question is again, How can I know whether the Lord is my shepherd? Or another way of putting it, how do I know whether I am one of the sheep of this shepherd? That's a very weighty question, especially also in light of the fact that today is preparatory Sunday. We are looking forward to the administration of the Lord's Supper next week. And that means that next week, The shepherd will be in our midst in a very special way. The shepherd will draw near to his people in a very special way by means of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And it's very clear, congregation, that that table is meant for the sheep. And so we need to know whether we belong to the sheep of that shepherd. Boys and girls, hopefully you remember some of the things I told you last week about how we may know whether we are a sheep of that shepherd. If you recall, the Lord Jesus himself tells us in John 10 that his sheep, first of all, they know him. And that's not just a a casual knowledge. That is a personal knowledge. That is an experiential knowledge. It is actually the knowledge of love. So we could say that Jesus is saying, my sheep, they know me and they love me. Number one. But the sheep that know and love him, they also hear his voice. That voice is very precious to the sheep. That voice, in a very special way, draws them to the shepherd. It is that voice which they recognize. And thirdly, the sheep that know him, the sheep that love him, the sheep that hear his voice, will also be sheep that follow him. That's a very essential component of the life of grace. Dear congregation, I cannot repeat this often enough. That believers in Christ, true believers in Christ, will always be followers of Christ. Those two belong inseparably together. We cannot claim to belong to this shepherd. We cannot claim him as our own unless by the grace of God, in some measure, our life affirms that we are also the followers of this great shepherd. And so those are three important questions, three ways by which we can examine ourselves. Because how can we come to a table 
that's about that shepherd, a table at which the shepherd is the host, a table in which we come to remember him. We can only remember someone whom we know, and that's the command of Christ, do this in remembrance of me. And so with God's help, we will continue to examine what Psalm 23 tells us about this wonderful shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd of his people. And so we will now focus on the third verse, the third verse where we read God's Word in our text. He, that is, the Lord with capital letters, He, the shepherd, He restoreth my soul. Present tense, not past tense. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. And so Jehovah is the shepherd, as we saw last week, who makes his people to lie down in green pastures, who causes his people to find their nourishment in the green pastures of his word, and who leads them beside the still waters. A shepherd who graciously feeds his people and who graciously refreshes his people. It is that shepherd who also guides his sheep. And there are three things our text tells us about that guidance. First of all, he restores his sheep. He restoreth my soul. Secondly, he leads his sheep, leading us in the path of righteousness. And thirdly, he is committed to his sheep, expressed in these beautiful words that he does it for his namesake. So he restores his sheep, he leads his sheep, and he is committed to his sheep. As I said before, as I said last week, sheep are naturally very foolish creatures. Sheep are creatures that cannot survive without a shepherd, a shepherd who must constantly look after them. And so a shepherd in Israel, as I said last week, a shepherd in Israel was engaged 24-7, seven days a week. His entire life was wrapped up in his flock. His entire life revolved around his sheep. Day and night he thought about his sheep. Day and night he cared for his sheep. And he would spend about half of his time going after straying sheep. Sheep who are always inclined to move in the wrong direction, who are always inclined to move away from the shepherd rather than following the shepherd. And so in countless ways, the shepherd would be engaged in in keeping his flock together. They were weak. They were vulnerable. And what were some of the ways in which the shepherd would deal with his wandering sheep? What are some of the ways in which he would restore them? The Hebrew word actually means literally to return them, to bring them back, to bring them close to himself. Well, there are a number of ways. I'm going to to mention five of them. 
Boys and girls, today you receive the list with questions about the sermon. That's one of the questions that's on the sheet. What are the ways in which the shepherd would restore his sheep, bring them back to himself? Well, number one, he would call their name. That was always his preferred method. And quite often, it would be enough for the shepherd to call out that sheep by its name. It would hear the voice of the shepherd and then would return. But that didn't always work. There would be those sheep that would ignore the voice of the shepherd. And then he carried with him a sling. Boys and girls, you know how David used his sling against Goliath. And a good shepherd in Israel, they were immensely skillful with that sling. They would put a stone in there, and they would whip it around, and they were extremely accurate. And so the shepherd would do that. He would see that one sheep wandering away, and he would swing it, and he would hit that sheep with a stone, and the sheep would get the message and would come back to the shepherd. If that didn't work, the shepherd would send his shepherd's dog specifically trained to go after straying sheep and to bring them back to the shepherd. That was always his goal because the sheep were only safe and secure. They could only prosper when they were near to the shepherd. Sometimes he would use his crooky, that special shepherd's staff that he would have. He would walk over and he would nudge that sheep. Or he would put the crook around his neck and turn it around and bring it back to himself. And then there would be those sheep for whom all of that did not work, who were so foolish, who were so bent on going their own way, that finally the shepherd would do the most radical thing he would know to correct that straying sheep. You know what he would do, boys and girls? He would take that sheep and he would break its legs. He would say, is that a loving thing to do? Yes, it was. Because that shepherd knew that unless he did something radical to that foolish sheep, that ultimately that sheep would perish and wander away and would be devoured by an animal of prey. But what did he do? Once he would break those legs and right away he would set them, he would heal them. And of course that sheep would not be able to walk. So what did the shepherd do? He would take that sheep and he would literally lay it on his neck. And he would walk around with that sheep on his neck for at least two weeks until the legs were healed. And what would happen in those two weeks is that sheep would have such an intimate relationship with that shepherd. That sheep would become so accustomed to the voice of the shepherd that by the time the two weeks were over, that shepherd could confidently put that sheep back on its feet, knowing that he would depart from him no more. Now, that's the picture that David has in mind when he says, he restoreth my soul. Remember, David wrote this psalm probably towards the end of his life, when he looked back and when he he remembered all the foolish things that he had done when he remembered all the times that he had wandered away from the shepherd and how time and again the Lord 
this wonderful covenant God, that magnificent God whose name is Jehovah, how time and again he had restored his soul and he had brought him back to himself. I want you to notice the language here. He restores my soul. That's very important, congregation, that we realize that that's what Christ is always doing, the great shepherd of his sheep. In other words, Christ is not interested necessarily in all the things that pertain to his temporal life. Christ's overarching objective in the lives of his children as he cares for his sheep is their spiritual prosperity, their spiritual well-being. He is the restorer of our souls. Because just like the sheep, God had to say of his people that they were bent towards backsliding. Backsliding. What an indictment that is. Because congregation, if you have any self-knowledge, you will have to say, so it is with me. We, the people of God, we are bent towards backsliding. What a wretched tendency that is. And there are various ways in which that backsliding can manifest itself. Often it begins with a neglect of prayer. It usually begins in the closet, or actually when we no longer visit our closet. So boys and girls, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by the closet? Does that mean that I literally have to go to my bedroom and lock myself in my closet? That's not what that means. What that simply means, a place where you can be alone with God. A place where you can privately worship God. And true believers need that. They cannot live without a closet. We need a closet life. We need a private walk with God where we are alone with Him and with His Word. And when we begin to neglect that, that's usually, that's usually the beginning of backsliding. can be world conformity. World conformity. That we love this present world. That we love the things of this world. That we live for the things of this world. And as a result, we lose our witness. That can also be unconfessed sin. It's one of the devil's tricks is that when we sin, to so discourage us that we, instead of confessing our sins at once, we, we then continue. Because you see, the devil knows that unconfessed sin sets the stage for the next sin and sets in process what it be, then becomes backsliding. And so then the child of God goes from one sin to the next and moves away further and further from the shepherd. Then it can also be that we are disobedient to God's revealed will. When we know the revealed will of the shepherd and yet we go our own way. A congregation, there could be many other things that could be listed as a young man, I read a wonderful book by Octavius Winslow dealing with backsliding with the declension of the soul. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. And there he goes into great detail, all the subtle ways that happen, all the subtle things that happen in the life of, of the sheep. 
that result in backsliding, in a drifting away from the shepherd. But how amazing is the love of the shepherd who will not allow his children to backslide with a perpetual backsliding. But a shepherd who so loves his sheep, who is so committed to his sheep, that he will do whatever it takes to bring us back to himself. Now, Isaiah 14, verse 4, we have this beautiful statement. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Jeremiah 3, verse 21. The Lord complains about his backsliding people. He says, they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. And by the way, congregation, the Lord's Supper is one of the wonderful ways whereby the shepherd heals the backsliding of his children whereby he restores our soul and draws us back to himself. Because what's amazing about the Lord's Supper is that the shepherd never waits until we're ready for it. Can you imagine that we would not have the Lord's Supper until we are all in the right place and we're all in the right frame? There would never be a Lord's Supper. But it comes regularly. It comes as this wonderful work of the shepherd to restore our souls. And that's why the week of preparation can be a very profitable week indeed. There's a reason why our forefathers started that tradition of preparing ourselves, because it is, after all, a most significant event to think that Christ draws so very near to us. When in daily life we are invited to a banquet, to an important banquet, when we are invited by an important person, we will make all kinds of preparations to go to such a banquet. So it ought to be with this banquet. And, then, and the Lord often uses the week of preparation to compel his children to stop and consider and to take spiritual inventory where we really are at. And then the week of preparation can be a profitable week, especially if we become painfully aware of how far we have drifted away from the shepherd. And so the whole intent of the work of preparation is not ultimately to turn yourself inside out. No, Paul says it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians 11 that we must examine ourselves and so partake of the Lord's table. In other words, what Christ wants you to do during this week is come back to Him. If you have sinned, if you have departed from Him, if you have backslidden, if you have grieved Him, come and confess it to Him. Confess it to the Christ, who when we do confess our sin is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, this shepherd, 
This shepherd will not leave a stone unturned to nurse his people back to spiritual health. Dear child of God, your shepherd wants you to prosper spiritually. Your shepherd wants you to flourish spiritually. Your shepherd wants you to live in the joy of his salvation. The reason we often dwell in darkness is not because of him, it's because of us, our foolishness. His desire is to restore our soul, to revive our soul, to, as it says in the Dutch Bible, to refresh our soul. And he will not leave. And of course, this, the Lord's Supper is one of the means, but that's why the shepherd will not hesitate even to afflict you. I don't know if you've noticed in the passage we read from Psalm 119, in that passage, David talks about affliction three times. Affliction to correct him. Affliction to, again, draw him back to the Word of God. Affliction to reacquaint him with the God from whom he had departed. Such is the commitment of the shepherd. And actually, the Lord's Supper, in a wonderful way, sets before us the basis for that commitment. Because in the Lord's Supper, we see the visible tokens of the love of that shepherd. There we see the visible reminders of the fact that that shepherd, in the fullness of time, became a sheep to be your shepherd that that shepherd came to give himself as a sacrifice for your sin. Oh, dear child of God, that shepherd shed his blood for you. That shepherd went to hell in your place. That shepherd endured the wrath of God in your place. That shepherd paid the penalty of your sin in full. That shepherd did everything to secure your salvation. And that's why this shepherd is so committed to you, so committed to your spiritual well-being. Because this shepherd is a shepherd who has loved you with an everlasting love, the stillness of eternity, you were given. First of all, you were chosen in that shepherd. You were chosen in Christ. You were given to Christ in order to be redeemed by Christ. And you have been drawn to Christ. You have been united to Christ. And by the Spirit, you have been enabled to embrace Christ. And this shepherd loves you more than you will ever be able to grasp and understand. This shepherd says, he said to his disciples, and he says it to you, I love you with the love with which my Father has loved me. Think about that. And it's his desire also next week to draw near to you and again to open up his heart to you, to unveil to you by means of the Lord's Supper that astounding love with which he loves you. In Jeremiah 32 verse 40, 
we read a beautiful passage. Open your Bibles, read it with me. It's such a beautiful verse. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. There we read, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. You see, the Lord's table affirms that that covenant relationship between Christ and His people, that love relationship between the shepherd and his sheep, that that love relationship is an unbreakable relationship. It is an affirmation that this shepherd will never forsake the work of his hands. But he also, secondly, not only does he restore us, but he leads us in the paths of righteousness. So what does righteousness mean, boys and girls? What does that mean, righteousness? Well, it's not so difficult. It has the word right in it. So righteous means that which is right. Now, obviously, it is not that which is right in our eyes, but that which is right in God's eyes. Paths of righteousness. Three things I want to briefly point out to you about those paths of righteousness. First of all, it is a way that agrees with God's purposes. Secondly, it is a way of following the shepherd by faith. And thirdly, it is the pathway of holiness. Let me briefly address all three of them. But before I do that, what's very clear from our text is that the purpose for which Christ restores his sheep is very obvious. He restores us to bring us back to the pathway of obedience, to bring us back to the pathway in which we follow Him. That is always the goal of God's dealings. God has redeemed you, dear believer. God has redeemed you in order to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that restoration brings us back. Before David says, we read it, Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have learned thy statutes. Oh, he's saying in Psalm 119, God has used affliction to bring me back, to bring me back to the pathway of obedience. So it is a path that is in full harmony with God's purposes. It is a path of which David said in Psalm 18, as for God, his way is perfect, and he maketh my way perfect. Dear believer, dear child of God, the way in which the shepherd is leading you is a righteous way. It is a way that fully agrees with God's purpose. It is God's perfect way. Even though it may at times seem to be very imperfect to us. No, he maketh my way perfect. That's what David is confessing here. 
He, has, he's, he leads me. He brings me back. He guides me back in that way which He has laid out for me. Sometimes that can be a way that is very contrary to our fleshly purposes. You see, if we could map out the pathway of our life, it would be a pathway in which we would not have to die to ourselves. It would be a pathway in which, in which everything would be favorable towards our flesh. If we could map our pathway, it would be a way without trials, without afflictions. And what would happen? We would become utterly spiritually corrupt. And so the way in which this shepherd leads us, the right way in which he leads his children is a way in which we will prosper spiritually, but that goes hand in hand with the fact that we have to die to ourselves, die to our own purposes, die to our own agenda, and fully surrender to the way in which He leads us. That means at times, and often it means, that that path of righteousness is a path in which we have to bear a cross, God's children are cross-bearers. When Jesus commands us to follow Him, He says, you must take up the cross, and you must deny yourself, and you must follow Me. And again, those crosses are by divine appointment. Those crosses are necessary. Those crosses are designed by the shepherd to expose our flesh in order that it will be crucified and that we die to ourselves so that our soul may prosper indeed. Ultimately for Christ, and the Lord's Supper sets that before us, ultimately for Christ, the path of righteousness, God's perfect way, led to the cross Himself. That's why I, I won't want to be cautious here, but I would say almost without exception, at some point in the lives of God's children, there will come a cross, a cross designed to keep us in the right way, a cross designed to make us die to ourselves and to live out of this Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So secondly, it is a path in which we must follow the shepherd by faith. Because as was true for the sheep, the shepherd was the only one who really knew the area. The sheep didn't know. The sheep were clueless. They had absolutely no idea where they were. They had no idea where to go. They did not know where the green pastures were. They did not know where the still waters were. Only the shepherd did. And that's why the shepherd so lovingly would discipline his sheep, would use his sling, would use his crook, would even break their legs because he wanted them to stay close to himself near to himself. Proverbs 8 verse 20, I lead in the way of righteousness. He only is the way. He is the only one who knows, dear believer, he is the only one who knows which way for you is safe and secure. In Psalm 5 verse 8, 
The same David says this, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. Oh, the world of the sheep was a dangerous world. But the world in which we are called to follow the shepherd is a very dangerous place indeed. And that's why Christ encourages us to stay close to Him. That's why He exhorts us lovingly to abide in Him. Oh, my people, stay with me. Follow with me. And if you follow me, I will lead you in the paths of righteousness. And He will do that by His Word and Spirit. In Psalm 19, verse 7, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect. Again, that means His Word. We sang it together. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the path of righteousness, the way that is right from God's perspective, the path of righteousness, the path in which the shepherd wants us to follow Him unconditionally, to stay with Him, to abide in Him. But also the path of righteousness, which ultimately is the pathway of holiness. Because congregation, ultimately in the life of every child of God, God has only one agenda point. And that agenda point is to conform you to the image of His Son. Romans 8, 28, 29. All things must work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Why? Because, he says, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so that is God's goal in the lives of God's children. Not only to redeem us by His Son, but to conform us to the image of His Son. To use the language of Ephesians 1, we could simply say, Dear believer, you have been chosen in Christ in order to become like Christ. And again, the Father will leave no stone unturned to conform His people to the image of His Son. So what is true spiritual growth? True spiritual growth is when Increasingly, we begin to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. That's holiness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. That's why the Father cannot tolerate it when His children behave themselves in a manner that contradicts that. Oh, dear believer, when we sin, when we misbehave ourselves, oh, we bring dishonor upon the name of our Savior. Because when we sin, when we misbehave ourselves, we are, we are reflecting the very opposite of what God has saved us for. Chosen in the Son, given to the Son, redeemed by the Son, drawn to the Son, united to the Son in order to become like unto the Son. What a blessing it is if our following of the shepherd, if our walking in those paths of righteousness, 
if that begins to bear that fruit, that something of the beauty and something of the Christ, and something of Christ becomes visible in our lives. That's why the shepherd will afflict us. That's why the shepherd will discipline us in order to bring us back to the path of righteousness. Because we will only live a God-glorifying life if by grace we begin to reflect the beauty and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the shepherd guides his sheep. He restores us. He leads us. And finally, he is committed to his sheep. And of course, some of that has been implied already. But it says he does it for his namesake. What a beautiful statement that is. That applies to the Lord's table. Why is it that we have the Lord's table? It's because we deserve it? It's because we're ready for it? Is that why it happens on a regular basis? No, it's for his namesake. For his namesake, he draws near to us. For his namesake, he invites us at his table. For his namesake, he wishes to nourish and refresh our souls at his table. For his namesake. I say that last week already, that a true shepherd in Israel zealously cared for his flock because his name and reputation was bound up in how well his flock was doing. And that's why, as I said last week already, a shepherd would rather die than allow an animal of prey to get one of his sheep. Other shepherds would look at his flock and with their professional uh, I, they could quickly tell whether the sheep of a given shepherd, whether they were well taken care of. And since those shepherds would often meet each other, often would come to the same watering hole, you can rest assured that they would go out of their way, that when others looked at their sheep, that they would think well of his shepherding, because they all knew that the condition of their flock, the condition of those sheep, was a reflection of who they were. Their name was at stake. Their reputation was at stake. A congregation that is infinitely more true of this great shepherd. This great shepherd will restore my soul. This shepherd will lead me in the path of righteousness. He will do it for his namesake. With this remarkable difference. The shepherd in Israel may have had a selfish motive in making sure that other shepherds would think highly of his sheep, but so it is not with this great shepherd. Oh, he does it for his namesake, that wonderful name, Lord, in capital letters, that wonderful name that so reveals the character of God. That wonderful name, Jehovah, the I am that I am, that allows us in, to look into the very heart of God. That one name that communicates to His people that He will never forsake the work of His hands. That wonderful name, that gospel name, that's what it is. It is the gospel name of God. That name ultimately 
that was fully revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who He was. That's who He is. He is Jehovah in the flesh. He is the embodiment of that name. All that that name entails is bound up in the person of Christ and revealed in the person of Christ. For His namesake, that simply means God will never act contrary to His name. Because the names of God in the Bible, of course, are given to us, not because there are other gods, but to, to instruct us about who He is. In His names, God reveals Himself. He reveals His character, and especially in this name. A congregation, God cannot act contrary to His name. He will always be true to that name. He will always be true what He has revealed of Himself in that name. So in Ezekiel 36, 22, we read these wonderful words, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy namesake. And when we see that table next week, the Lord is saying to you, to His children here, I'm not doing this for your sake in the first place, but I'm doing it for my holy namesake. I'm doing it because I am committed to you with an everlasting commitment. I am your God, and you are my people. And I want you to know that because of what Christ has accomplished, because of what my Son has accomplished, that I will never, never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I, the Lord, I change not. As you know, that was Moses' appeal. There were those times where Israel misbehaved so much that God said to Moses, Moses, I'm done with these people. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Moses would appeal to that name. And he said, Lord, what wilt thou do with thy great name? What will the enemy say? And that appeal was always successful. And you read that often in the Old Testament, that believers, that God's children, they take aim at that name. They take aim at the heart of God. He will do it for His namesake. 1 Samuel 12, verse 22 expresses that as well. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. So even when we are least deserving of it, He will not forsake us. And he again will demonstrate that visibly and tangibly by way of the Lord's Supper. Oh, how humbling and how encouraged that is. If by the grace of God we are a sheep of the shepherd, if by the grace of God we belong to the people of God, it's not because of anything in you. It's not because of your initiative. No, it pleased, it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. And therefore, and therefore alone, He ministers to our soul. Therefore alone, He restores us. 
Therefore alone He corrects us. Therefore alone He leads us in the paths of righteousness. And ultimately what it means that He will do it for Christ's sake. That's the answer, you see. There is the solution. And so ultimately, as I said already at the beginning, the Lord's table points us to the cross. The Lord's table is the only legitimate, visible display of the cross of Calvary. That's why Christ gathers us around that table, and He said, this do in remembrance of me. So God wants to communicate to His people again. For my Son's sake, for Christ's sake, for my name's sake, I will always be your God, and you will always be my people. Because the cross is what unites us to Him. That perfect sacrifice is the foundation upon which rests our hope. That's why we come to the table, not in the first place to confess something about ourselves, but our coming to the Lord's table is a public confession that also for us, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must and can be saved. It is a confession that by grace we have learned that this Christ alone and His finished work is the only foundation of our hope. And so may we enter this week of preparation, remembering how much the shepherd loves his sheep, to remember how committed the shepherd is to his sheep, and that he has ordained not only the ministry of his word, that he has ordained that wonderful sacrament to restore our soul and to lead us again in the pathway of righteousness. So, boys and girls, congregation, are you one of His sheep? Because ultimately, the week of preparation is meant for all of us. Even if you've never come to the Lord's table, even if you would have to admit today that you are still an unbeliever, you also need to take the week of preparation seriously. Because as has been said, it's not original with me, but I will repeat it often. To be unprepared for the Lord's table ultimately means that you are unprepared to meet God. And so if you've never partaken of the Lord's table, and, you, and it, if it is something that has never even concerned you, I hope that this week, that this will really come home to you, that you will wrestle at last with this all-important matter, and that you would realize that unless this shepherd is your shepherd, you will ultimately perish. And so may God bless us during this week of preparation. Amen. We will now read the first part of the form for the Lord's Supper. And so please turn with me to page 136. 136. 136. Page 
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Unworthily means here in an unworthy manner. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is above all things necessary, first, rightly to examine ourselves. Secondly, to direct it to that end for which the Christ has ordained and instituted the same, namely, to his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that, rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart whether he doth believe this faithful promise. And the language is very important. Is Do you believe this promise? What promise? Namely, the promise of God that all sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. In other words, do you believe the promise of the gospel and all that it entails? Thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposes henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and to walk uprightly before him, as also whether he has laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforward to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those, then, who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. And I want to emphasize here, because I've, in my pastoral experience, some people think that if you come to Lord's table... Uh, um, not rightly that you commit the unpardonable sin. That's not what this says. But obviously, it displeases Christ if someone comes to the table without being one of the sheep. So it brings judgment upon us. 
Therefore, we also, according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, admonish all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ, such as all idolaters, all those who invoke the sea saints, angels or other creatures, all those who worship images, all enchanters, diviners, charmers, and all those who confide in such enchantments. All despisers of God and of His Word and of the Holy Sacraments, all blasphemers, all those who are given to raise discord, sex, and mutiny in church or state, all perjured persons, all those who are disobedient to their parents and superiors, all murderers, contentious persons, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, usurers, robbers, gamesters, that means gamblers, covetous, and all who lead offensive lives. All these, while they continue in such sins, shall obtain from this meat which Christ has ordained only for the faithful, lest their judgment and condemnation be made the heavier. But this is not designed, dearly beloved brethren and sisters in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the supper of the Lord but those who are without sin. For we do not come to this supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. But on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death. Therefore, notwithstanding we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves as namely, that we have not perfect faith and that we do not give ourselves to serve God with that zeal as we are bound, but have daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and the evil lusts of our flesh. Yet, since we are by the grace of the Holy Spirit sorry for these weaknesses and earnestly desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God, Therefore we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remains against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. Thus far our form. We will now call upon the Lord's name. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before Thee at the end of this service to ask for Thy indispensable blessing upon what we have heard and read. And Lord, wilt Thou bless Thy own Word, Thou who art the great shepherd of the sheep. Oh, wilt Thou use also this instruction to encourage Thy children, to help them understand how astounding Thy love is towards them, how amazing thy commitment is towards them, that thou art a God who wilt restore our soul, refresh our soul, revive our soul, and return us to the pathway of righteousness for thy namesake. May that encourage us in the coming week as we focus on the administration of the Lord's Supper in this coming Lord's Day. Lord, bless our time as we interact with thy word. And we do pray that also next week that thou wouldst make thyself known to us in the breaking of the bread. Remember the whole congregation, also our children and young people who do not have yet a church right to partake, that they too 
would reflect on what this means, that it, that it would also be to their spiritual benefit, and that those who continue in sin, that this would bring them to their knees and cry out to this shepherd that he would also save and redeem their soul. Bless us and gather with us again in this evening hour, and pardon our sins both in speaking and hearing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.